Amen. First Peter chapter 3, let's take our Bibles and as you're turning, let's go ahead and stand. We'll dismiss our children and uh, looking forward to God demonstrating He has it all under control because He really does. And even when it looks like He doesn't, He does. When things look out of control, not to God. And uh, so I'm very thankful for that truth and that song. First Peter chapter number three. So we're continuing our journey through this book of hope. And if you ever feel like you're lacking hope, go to First Peter. And that's really his message here. Notice in verse number eight. Finally. Now, this word finally is not referring to things that he has said before. And so this is the last point. Finally is starting another section. We looked at the last time we were here, we looked at this matter of the marriage relationship, husbands and wives, and that's who he's talking about in verses one through seven. And in context, he's taking, starting back in chapter number two, and he was taking responsibilities that we have of submission. And he talked about government and other authorities in our life and then the marriage relationship. And so now he's making a transition and he says, finally, finally be ye all of one mind. Not just regarding the governmental authorities um, and being servants, uh, um, servants of God back in chapter 2, verse 16. Not as servants to our masters as employee, employees to their employers, as, as citizens to their uh, government, as uh, wives to husbands. But now he says in verse number eight, finally, finally be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love is brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. As we're continuing looking at this concept of hope, here Peter gives us a checklist. A checklist that we can go over to help us. You've gone on a trip, maybe you make a checklist. Now with our fancy phones, my wife and I will share a note of things we have to get for the trip. And one of them that's always on there is a phone charger. And the one that I always forget is a phone charger. And I did this past trip as well. And so uh, checklists are helpful. They're extremely helpful if you use them. And Peter gives us a checklist for maturity. You ever think sometimes in your Christian walk you just can't get out of the immature stage, we never stop growing. We're to never stop going. But we have to understand that he gives us what maturity looks like and he gives us hope. It's a book of hope that we can mature in the Lord. Hope for Christian maturity this morning. Thank you. Please be seated. 
Too many church congregations are characterized by attitudes and actions that are shameful. But Jesus told his followers that the world would know that they're his disciple if they love one another. The church is like an embassy in a foreign land. Our rules and ethics of eternity, well, we operate different within the sphere of the world. And Peter wrote this letter to prepare Christians for a fiery trial. That's what is spoken of in this book, a fiery trial of persecution. Yet Peter's approach is really optimistic. It's very positive and encouraging, though there are some things he has to say at times that, that may sting a little bit, but it's all couched in hope, hope in God. So he, he's telling them, in light of the fact persecution is going to come, fiery trials are going to happen, prepare for the best. Be hope-filled. In this particular section we just read, he's going to give some instructions that if we follow them, we can experience the best blessings in worst times. Have you ever... I shouldn't say ever, but have you seen anything in the news lately that gave you any indication it's going to get better anytime soon? We're living in a very volatile world right now. And I don't think we're getting the half of it as to how just how volatile things are. But Peter was saying that 2,000 years ago it was the same. Remember, this is not too many days removed from them having taken Jesus Christ and crucified him. And though Jesus was crucified, he was buried and resurrected and is living on high. And because of that, he's writing this book of hope. One of the thoughts here as we get into this is that as you become a blessing to others, you really set yourself up to be blessed. And that's a, a thought that he gives here even in um, verse number 11 and verse number 12. And so we move into this and he's giving us a checklist of evaluation. On your pilgrimage, on your journey of Christian maturity, these checkpoints, they include unity, mutual interest, friendship, affection, compassion, humility, forgiveness, a controlled tongue, a pure life, a peaceful disposition. I'm going to give them all to you again. But does that sound like our society? No. But that should sound like the church of the living God. So let's go through these nine, nine things to help us evaluate our progress in this pilgrimage from earth to heaven. Number one, notice in verse number eight. <clears throat> Finally, be ye all of one mind. That's unity. He's calling for unity. Now, this refers to a oneness of heart, a similarity of purpose, and an agreement on, on the essentials. This is a like-minded unity. This is harmonious. I think that's a, that's a significant word, harmony, when we're talking about this. Be ye all of one mind, be in harmony. The, the, the Greek word for uh, one here, be ye all of one mind, this idea is that of having the same 
heart. See, unity is not uniformity. It's not that everybody looks the same and, and, and acts the same. In fact, you take the ones Jesus chose for his disciples, they were all so different. And different is not the problem, it's the lack of harmony, unity. Unity is also not being, it's, it's not the same as a union where it's all unanimity. It, it's not this where we are all doing the same thing without a common interest. So the, again, the idea of unity, I think harmony is good because it means we're all contributing our unique notes in a beautiful course that surpasses uh, just any single note. And so we're not all singing the same note. We're singing different notes, different parts. You have your soprano and alto and your tenor and your bass and your monotone. And, uh, and so you've got those five parts. You, some of you don't know that, that fifth one there, but that is, uh, that's probably the biggest section of our choir. I think it's the monotone there, right? Never mind. Anyway. Uh, but we're, we're all singing different notes, but it's the, if it's the same song, uh, you, you find something, especially that, that the majestic song, uh, the uh, uh, Handel's Messiah, the, the, the music that is, or the Hallelujah Chorus of the Handel's Messiah. You can look at this, it looks overwhelming if you look at the notes and the parts, and, but in harmony, it's beautiful. And that's what Peter's saying, we're to be unified. All have different giftings and abilities, and, and yet we can still be unified. That's why we say when a person joins the church, you, don't, you join the church. The church doesn't join you. You know, somebody may say, I don't like this part. I don't like this part. Don't like this part. And what happens is, is if everyone responds the same way about what they don't like, I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to get involved. I'm not going to do this. Well, you wouldn't have a church. And, and he never says to be unified over the parts that you like. He doesn't say, well, I'm just going to be unified over this section. I'm going to be unified when it comes to this section. It, and unity is a message Paul deals with, James deals with, Peter deals with, and he just says be unified. And he doesn't say be unified if it's to your liking, he just says you need to be unified. So the secret to this kind of harmony and unity is not to focus on petty peripheral differences, but on common ground issues of Jesus Christ his method, his message, his mission. So the question is, how mature are you in the area of unity? Are you at harmony with other believers in the family of God? Are you one who works well with others? Number two. By the way, there's nine of these if you want to put them, write them down as a number. And I hesitate to tell you the number because you're thinking one down, eight to go, and you're looking at your watch. And I'm going to just warn you, look at your watch. You run the risk of your watch not working. And, uh, and so you may want to be careful with that. And, um, and so some of you are thinking, I'm going to ask my husband to buy me a new one if it stops working. And so you have a strategy, but stay with me. Number two, verse eight. Finally, be all of one mind. Having compassion 
having compassion one of another. <clears throat> this is mutual interest. This would be where we get this, this having compassion is where we get another word, sympathy. If you looked at the Greek word, you'd see that oh, it looks like sympathy because that's where we get that. It literally means to feel with someone. When we are in a cl close fellowship with fellow believers, as Peter has in mind, we will naturally affect each other emotionally. We're going to rejoice when others rejoice. We're going to weep when others weep. If you stay in close proximity, as Peter is understanding the church to be, then he says we ought to have this mutual interest in each other. Romans 12, 15 tells us, rejoice with them that do rejoice. Weep with them that do weep. Do you weep with others when they weep? What about rejoice? This is the absence of competition. It's the absence of envy or jealousy. This is one of the best benefits, I think, one of, one of the better benefits of being a part of the body of Christ and being a part of a church family. This does not justify, however, any wrong that someone might do. But what it does is it allows us to be understanding and sympathetic. And you can be understanding and sympathetic without justifying. A mature person can hold two different seemingly opposing thoughts at the same time. For example, Proverbs speaks of the fact that a man may steal, which is a breaking of one of the Ten Commandments. It's against the law. He may steal because he's hungry. You can be sympathetic and understand. I can. If he's hungry, he's starving, he's got to provide. I understand that. But it doesn't mean we justify Breaking a law. You don't justify, though you can be understand, understanding and sympathetic. Those of you who are parents have, have had situations where your children did something that was clearly wrong, though you had, once you understood and you could understand there was a, 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 a thought process behind it, even though it was wrong and had to be dealt with and they had to be taught, this is wrong, you can't do this, but you can be sympathetic and every parent ought to be understanding and sympathetic, but so ought to be God's people. This is, this is very important. What's your maturity level when it comes to this second checkpoint? Can you truly say you've entered the, the, into the realm of being able to feel what other people feel? When others hurt, do you hurt? When they enjoy life, do you really enjoy it with them? When God blesses them with material prosperity or some significant award, promotion, do you rejoice with them or do you envy? When they lose, do you feel the loss with them or just a tiny pinprick of satisfaction? <clears throat> I've heard it said that maturity begins to grow when you can sense your concern for others outweighing your concern for yourself. See, maturing believers care very much about the things others are experiencing. This is the nature of what the church ought to feel like, number three. Notice he says, finally, finally be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. See the next phrase? Love as brethren. 
<clears throat> the word love is that phileo love. It's the brotherly love. He talks about this back over in chapter 1 and verse 22. It refers to an affectionate love that siblings ought to have. Now, if your sibling situation doesn't, is not a good example of this, ignore your example. That's not good for this. But, but he's saying here, now listen, he's talking to the church and he's saying, just as you would have this love for your brother or sister, you should have this love for your church family. There's a lot of divisions that have happened and transpired in churches because individuals did not give the same Bible command courtesy to a church family member as they would their own family. Remember, Jesus is the one who said his disciples, his disciples, the church that he founded, that was his mother. That was his brother. Those were his sisters. And I'm sure the disciples were thinking, which one of us is he calling mother and sister? And they already accused Jesus of being mad, that he lost his mind. And here he says this, but what he's saying to them, and he went on to elaborate, those who have chosen to do the will of God, to be a part of a committed band of disciples, that's my family. Far different than what we many times say about it. Remember, if you're a Baptist, means you believe the Bible. The Bible is our authority, not your family code or creed or your crest symbol. This affectionate companionship is much deeper than superficial activities that pass for so-called fellowship in our churches. It's a sense of loyalty just as strong as one's natural family relationships. The poet Samuel Coleridge once described friendship as a sheltering tree. When you have this quality, the branches of your friendship reach out over the lives of others, giving them shelter, shade, rest, relief, and encouragement. Friends give encouragement. Friends give comfort. You can find strength when you're near them. They bear fruit that provide nourishment and encouragement. A few things I believe are more lonely than having no friend to call. You tell me your friend, someone said, and I'll tell you your future. Are you cultivating such friends? By the way, a Bible friend, a friend that the Bible describes is someone who will do right and help you do right. See, we think of a friend as one who will commiserate with us in our crime, in our current mess. But if you're in a hog pen, a real friend is going to help get you out of that and help get you back to the Father so you can get back to where you ought to be. doesn't just jump in and make mud pies with you. One man has said that one of his great hopes in life is to wind up with at least eight people talking about friends outside of his family, that he hopes that one of his great hopes in life is to wind up with at least eight people who will attend his funeral without once ever having to check his calendar. As we mature, it's healthy for us to have a circle of friends 
who will lovingly hold us close regardless. They care about our pain. They're there for us when we can't make it on our own. And the flip side of this is equally healthy that we're working to be a friend to others. And I'll tell you what comes to my mind as I worked on this. I thought about our very men, the core of our men here have this same understanding, I believe, and have this same uh, appetite to be this kind of man. Number four. See, in verse number eight, finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren. See the next two words, be pitiful. Now, this is an old English word, but it simply means be full of pity. What is that? Well, it's a heartfelt compassion. It's kind heartedness. It's compassion. It's translated compassion. Compassion over in Matthew 9 and verse 36 where Jesus looked out over the multitudes and he was moved with, that was pity. That's the same same word, kind-hearted compassion. Jesus, the good shepherd, looked at humanity's lost, scattered, frightened, hungry sheep and it moved him with compassion. This is the same term that Paul uses in Ephesians 4, 32 when he says, and be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. See, maturing people are tender people. How valuable is it to have something like that in the kind of society in which we live? That doesn't sound like what makes the news reels today or the video post of people just randomly producing violence and then others just videoing. Someone gets knocked out or even shot and people just walk around them. It sounds very barbaric because it is. That's the the condition of a world that's lost going to hell that doesn't know the love of God. But what Peter is saying, because there is hope in God and God in you. And this is the way it ought to look. Number five. Verse number eight still. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be, what's the word? courteous. Now this idea of courteous literally means lowly, bowed down. It refers to humility. Humility. It speaks of an internal attitude rather than an external appearance. This means we ought to have a humble mindset. It might be easy to appear humble with a false modesty. It's easier, I think, to do that than to create a humility on the inside. But Peter's talking about a deep down humility that nobody can see in our thought life, in our me first world. And what comes to my mind when I think about that is, you remember the Black Friday sales? I don't know if they still have that. I always wait to see as they throw in the news when the doors open at midnight or whatever it is, and, and people rush in there, they're making a dive. It looks like a, 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 the, the, the quarterback sneak at the goal line, going over the pile, trying to grab that 96-inch TV that's $100 off, and, 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 they're, and they duke it out, and they're just fighting. 
And what they wanted, they end up, uh, only a few left, they're using that to beat each other over the head with. It's hard to swallow the last shall be first principle if you don't know the one who wrote it. When people are blessed with exceptional talents and skills, by the way, temptation to promote themselves and crave the limelight is great, but true humility curbs the ego's insatiable appetite that just eats away within. See, humility isn't a show we put on because if we think we're humble, we're probably not. Oswald Chambers writes of this so insightfully. He says, we have a tendency to look for wonder in our experience and we make and we mistake heroic actions for real heroes. It's one thing to go through a crisis grandly, yet quite another to go through every day glorifying God when there is no witness, no limelight, no one paying even the remotest attention to us. If we're looking for halos, we at least want something that will make people say, what a wonderful man. What a wonderful man of prayer he is, or what a great woman of devotion she is. If you're properly devoted to the Lord Jesus, you've reached the lofty height where no one would ever notice you personally. All that is noticed, Chambers said, is the power of God coming through you all the time. We want to be able to say, oh, I have had a wonderful call from God. But to do even the most humbling task to the glory of God takes the almighty God incarnate working within us. That's an awful lot said in those few paragraphs. Carl Sandburg told the story of a mother who brought her newborn son to General Robert E. Lee for a blessing. The southern gentleman tenderly looked at the little boy in her arms and he said to the mother, Ma'am, please teach him that he must deny himself. We need humility. Now, these first five traits, virtues of mature Christianity, it relates to how we think. Like being humble in spirit, like-minded, and how we feel, sympathetic, brotherly love, compassion. The last four we're going to see here real fast relate to what we do, what we say, the outward. So the first five have to do more so with the inward. The, the last four have to do with the outward, how they affect others. Verse 9. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing but contrarywise blessing. So the sixth mark here of a mature Christian is that of a forgiving nature. A forgiving nature. See, refusing to exact revenge when we've been injured in some way, that's one thing. But he says, don't just refuse to respond with revenge, but he says, contrarywise Give a blessing. Not bless them out, but give them a blessing. Do something. But because we've been called to inherit blessing from God, because Christ has secured a hope for us that with Christ we never can lose, 
We can go through just what Christ went through. We can endure evil, insults, and we can do so with patience and grace. He gives us kind of a process here. I'll give you four steps in, in, in this, this passage we just read. First, we refuse to get back or get even when we have true forgiveness. When there's true forgiveness, we're not looking to get back. We're not looking to get even. Second, we refrain from saying anything ugly in return. Third, I'm going to tell you, it, it would cut out half of social media posts if those things were just followed. Third, we return good for evil, giving a blessing instead of evil or insult. You say, well, what does that even look like? Well, someone does something and, and he says rather than retaliating, Rather than saying something ugly, we refrain. And then instead, in the place of doing something to get back, give them a gift card. Write them a note, put a $100 bill in there. Fourth, we keep in mind, now if I, if I get a bunch of gift cards after the service, you're going to make me feel really bad, so don't, don't do that. But um, the, the idea is we have hope in God that we can't lose. Whatever the score is by the end of our life here is not the final score. Fourth, he says, we keep in mind that we're called to endure such harsh treatment. And it's easy to miss this one. It's easy to, um, to, to, to miss that, that fourth thought. And that's in verse number nine. I didn't finish reading it. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrary wise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. And so we've got to, we've got to understand we're not above Jesus that we're not going to go through if we identify with him some of the same suffering. You go back to chapter 2, and that's one of the things that he talks about over there in chapter uh, 2, verse 20 and 21, that we're to suffer. I mean, we're going to suffer. We're not looking to suffer. We're not signing up for it, but we're called to follow his steps. So what is a sure sign that I'm growing up? What's a sure sign that you as a Christian are maturing. Here it is, when you stop fighting back. When you take the chip off your shoulder. When you stop working on your clever answer so you can punch back with a sarcastic jab. See, whenever the urge to get even comes over us, it's an important indicator that we are still living in, in spiritual infancy and our spiritual diapers might need to be changed. Number seven, verse 10. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Here it is. It's a controlled tongue. The tongue. What a battle. Guard our speech. Warnings about the tongue there threaded all throughout the Bible. By the way, I meant to say this at the beginning. Peter is giving us an exposition here in these verses out of Psalm 34. Psalm, he's quoting Psalm 34 verses 12 through 16. I was going to read it, but for time, I'm not going to read this. But that's what Peter's doing here in these verses 8 through 12. 
And he says, refrain your tongue from evil. James chapter three says a mature man is one who's able to bridle his tongue. You can bridle a horse, but man seems not to be able to bridle his tongue. But if you're a mature Christian, you will. He says, you really want to love life? You want to see good days? Gain better control over your tongue. Life will be happier for you. It'll be even easier for you. You'll see better days. And some never seem to learn this lesson. You remember the classic grave marker from old England? Beneath this sod, this lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. You know, so um, some of us never learn it until it's too late. The mature believer's tongue is tamed. It avoids gossip, slander, crude language, Deception, exaggeration, wickedness, foolishness. It reminds me of another psalm, Psalm 141, verse 3. The psalmist said, set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Those lines are worth praying every morning before a single stray word slips from our tongues. Because a mark of maturity is a controlled tongue. Let me ask you, how are you doing on your checklist so far? Unity, mutual interest, friendship and affection, kind-heartedness, compassion, humility, forgiveness, a controlled tongue. Pretty convicting list. But these qualities are worth our time and attention if we want to have hope that we can grow beyond immaturity. Number eight. Verse number 11, he says, let him eschew evil. And do good. Eschew evil and do good. Again, he's quoting from Psalm 34, verse 14. And this, I believe he's emphasizing a life of purity. Purity from wickedness means turning away from evil inclinations, temptations. Eschew evil. It means to bend. It's almost like we see something. This is not a good situation. It's sinful. It's, it's not of God. And we're going to bend ourselves as a contortionist to get away from it. We're going to eschew and hate. Psalmist said, uh, ye that love the Lord, hate evil. And that's what we ought to do. The eyes and ears of the Lord are upon those who are his people, but those who, who are against God. We're told here, he says in verse 12, he's against them that do evil. And so we have a motivation. God hears you. God knows what you're going through. God's for you. And then I want you to see last of all, verse number 11. Not only are we to have a life of purity, eschew evil, do good, but he says now we're to seek peace and pursue it. Seek peace and pursue it. That's a peaceful disposition. We're a people who love to argue and fight. When wronged, we jump to our feet. We dig in our heels. When challenged, we clench our fist. Whether it's over some philosophical difference or the color of the carpet. Christians can quickly rob each other of peace. Instead of seeking and pursuing peace, we often pursue controversy and engage in open conflict. But let me ask you a question. Should not the servants 
of the Prince of Peace reflect something of that peace in a world that can't seem to find it? Turn away from evil, do good, that's purity. Seek peace and pursue it, that's peace. Again, I want to say this is quite a checklist. Nine distinct notches to mark out our Christian maturity. How do you measure up? But can I say behind Peter's Christian maturity checklist, there is an important assumption he's making. And that is every believer can have hope and optimism that you can grow into spiritual maturity to a point where you can walk consistently in light of God's word. I didn't say walk perfectly, but I did say consistently. You can have a consistent life of unity, mutual interest, friendship, affection, brotherly love, compassion, humility, forgiveness, self-control, purity, and peace. And it doesn't mean we don't fail. It just means when we do fail, we're going to have maturity to acknowledge it and to deal with it and to allow the grace of God to restore us and strengthen us. And when you properly understand this, I believe you'll see Peter's rapid fire bullets point out the weakest spots in our spiritual armor, convicting us that we're still soldiers in training. Growing up, it's not really all that easy. We all have areas of trouble, setbacks, stumbling points. I don't know a single item on this list that hasn't been a struggle for me at various times in my own life. But that's why. We pray about this, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are, are over the righteous and His ears are open to their prayers. He's listening. He's waiting. He's here to help. So let me give you a practical suggestion. Let's go ahead and stand together. Can we do that? Let me give you a practical su suggestion. Go over this list. Maybe at the end of every month. Write it out and stick it where you'll see it. Put it under a refrigerator magnet, tape it to your mirror, and ask God for strength in these nine areas. Now don't do what I did early on in my Christian life, and that is just single out, and I'm going to do the best I can't really work on this. Look at it like the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit are not fruits of the Spirit. It's just one fruit. He just describes the taste that you'll get when you bite into the fruit of the Spirit. And these things we've looked at as Peter has delineated, delineated these things, but these we can't just say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tackle this one today. Now what we need to do is experience the God who wrote these and understand this describes the very life of Jesus. And if Jesus is in you, then we can expect Him to express His life through us. But you need to get settled this morning whether or not you've just come to church or if you have ever personally come to Jesus for the new birth and experienced a regeneration of the life of God literally moving inside. In other words, if you need to get saved, you better get saved. You're living on borrowed time. And you don't know when it'll expire. God's people, we have a checklist for revival. A checklist that will help us see how we're doing and maturing from immaturity to maturity. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you 
for the reminder today of things that are such an important part of our lives. Though none of these qualities would be new, we continue to need the reminder. How often we've come asking for help in one or more of these areas. You've heard our prayers. You've heard our cries on many occasions. We won't so to be growing toward maturity, but the journey seems to take forever. So this very moment, we thank you, Lord Jesus, our model, our master, who fulfilled each of these marks of maturity and dozens of other character qualities <coughs> to perfection, though fully man. Thank you for the hope we have that your Holy Spirit will be with us each step of our way on our road to maturity. We certainly need the Spirit's empowerment to keep us going and growing. I would ask, Lord, finally, that you give us hope beyond our immaturity. Guard us from discouragement as we look back over the checklist and realize how far we have to go and remind us that we've come a long way toward the goal by the grace of God. Through Jesus Christ, I pray. With heads bowed and with God spoken to you, the invitation is open, the altar is available. As the piano plays, I invite you to come. <laughs>